I'm Tobias Elwood, Member of Parliament and former Minister for both the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and the Ministry of Defence, and I'm currently the Chair of the House of Commons Defence Select Committee. And in recent days, I've been recording a series of podcasts for the Conservative Middle East Council with a number of leading defence and defence policy experts as we approach the publication of the Strategic Defence and Security Review in the hopes that we can answer some of the major looming strategic challenges the UK faces in the coming decade. And for this last podcast, as part of the series, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Karen von Hippel, who is the Director General of RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute. I understand the world's oldest independent think tank on international defence and security. RUSI has been at the heart of military and security thinking for over 180 years. The Duke of Wellington established the institute in 1831, and since then it has been at the centre of policymaking and thinking about defence and security throughout the peak and transformation of the British Empire, two world wars, the Cold War, and now the new disorder, if we can call it that, of the contemporary world. So, uh, Dr. Karen von Hippel, welcome today. So, thank you, Tobias, and thank you to CMEC for inviting me to join you for this podcast. Delighted to discuss a range of issues with you today, and glad to hear that you think RUSI is as relevant today as it was 189 years ago. Well, I've lent on your documents and publications ever since I became a Member of Parliament, so really pleased to have you here. should explain that you come with a wealth of experience and justifying your Director General rank at RUSI. You were at the U.S. Department of State as a Senior Advisor in the Bureau of Counterterrorism and then as Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations and then finally as Chief of Staff to General John Allen, who uh, I know very well, and Special Presidential Envoy for the Global Coalition to Counter Daesh. And you've also got experience of working at the UN, the EU, as well as other places across the world. So such a wealth of knowledge. And we're really pleased to be able to probe into some of the big issues. And when you speak about European security, there's two aspects of that. There's the positive, I suppose, which is NATO, this enduring alliance, which has done well. And then, of course, there is what on earth is Russia up to? So let's start with those two, two, two questions to you. You know, I think that the Russia relationship has become increasingly complicated over the last decade, really. I mean, in many ways, Obama's inaction on a number of issues, whether it was the Syria civil war or the Ukraine crisis, the invasion of Crimea, the inaction of the United States under President Obama, who I worked for, really served to galvanize countries such as Russia and China to become more assertive and aggressive. Now, Obama had his own reasons for not wanting to get involved militarily. He wanted to avoid another Iraq, but inaction often sends a stronger message than action sometimes. So I think you can trace some of the Putin's learning about what he could get away with back to that period. He might've done that anyway. It's very hard to say. I think he knows that the US in general and Western European countries are reluctant to go to war, but he has certainly been pushing the envelope and he has played so far above the weight of Russia, which really is not a superpower anymore. It does have nuclear weapons, as we all know, but it's not a superpower. But he really has managed to play above his weight in so many ways, mostly in the hybrid space. And then, of course, he just denies everything. I mean, the latest example of this potential assassination of Alexei Navalny in Siberia is, you know, here's another example where they deny that they were involved. 
But if they were not involved, don't you think that they would have spent a lot of time trying to make sure the hotel where he may have been poisoned or maybe the airport was completely safe and secure, sent in all the people you know who have experience in decontaminating areas, etc. There hasn't really been any response at all like that by the Russians. And so, you know, Putin has just gone from strength to strength. He's interfering again in the U.S. elections, as we know. He's interfered across Europe. And when he's confronted mm-hmm. with evidence by very good investigative organizations such as Bellingcat, he just denies it. And I think that's how you can contrast Russia with China in many ways. They both are asserting their way globally. They both counter the values that the UK, the US, and other countries espouse, but they're going about their maneuvers for power in different ways. We associate, we'll come to it, I think, the stepping back of the United States, perhaps, from an interest in the international global order, not least with the COVID, you know, when you'd expect a superpower to perhaps take a lead. But you touched on the fact that it was actually Obama who just didn't do anything, let alone a deliberate America first approach. I remember the vote here in Parliament in 2013, where we chose not to intervene in Syria. And I think that did give the green light. Perhaps that's an illustration of what you meant with Obama. So it's really interesting. Perhaps there is this reluctance of presidents not to or make to make promises to focus on domestic, but there are consequences when you know, the Western superpower takes a backseat. Right, that's absolutely the case. I mean, Obama. There was a famous quote that he leads from behind that one of his advisors said quietly behind the scenes, and that was quoted quite often. And I think he was trying to play a more collaborative role. I think you're right that the UK decision not to uh, bomb Syria influenced the United States as well, but he could have decided to do it anyway. But he certainly wanted to work in partnership with partners. And that's absolutely not the case with President Trump, who is very happy to go it alone, but then gets very upset when other countries don't join him. And he never even makes an attempt to try to bring them on board. So they have very different styles of leadership. And, you know, you could even trace it back further. I mean, I'm not a historian, but you could trace it back to the U.S. war in Iraq when many countries thought that was an illegal preemptive war. Uh, we later found out that there were no weapons of mass destruction that Saddam Hussein had, etc. We all know that story. But, of course, I think many countries didn't trust the U.S. at the time. And that also really has served to besmirch U.S. leadership, and it really has interfered with U.S. attempts to provide that moral authority. And so I do think that even if, I know I'm jumping ahead of it, but just in this particular case, that if Biden is to win the presidency, it's not going to be a revert to the pre-Trump period. There will be many countries that no longer trust the United States. And even if they believe that Biden is going to be a believer in multilateralism and partnerships and alliances, they may still think, what is to stop another Trump from being elected in the future? And a Trump that may be more effective than this particular President Trump has been. He doesn't know how to work the levers of power very well. So what's to stop a future one? So we need, in all of these countries, we need to build up our own capacity, our own resilience, etc., which, you know, at the end of the day, may be a good thing. And it's interesting also how personalities are really shaping the direction of travel nowadays. Obama... Trump, but ultimately going back to Putin himself, he's now secured power for a very long time, arguably for the rest of his lifetime. And he seems to still have a bee in his bonnet about Russia losing its superpower status. Would you agree that he actually has nothing to lose by seeing a divided West? In fact, 
perhaps that's one of his objectives, to encourage the West to be divided so we can't consolidate a more collective approach and how to deal with some of his, his misdemeanors. Absolutely. He's very interested in a divided Europe, divided West, divided NATO, and he's doing everything he can to interfere at the local levels through to the organizational levels. And now he has really a partner in crime with China, which is also pushing for a divided Europe to prevent European common stances on China. And so, uh, but certainly Russia started that out before China did, and, and Putin has been at it for some time. It's very interesting with Putin because I do remember having conversations with people about, there are a number of people, Russia experts, who will say to you, oh, you're getting it all wrong with Russia. You know, They feel that they're on the defensive, not the offensive, and you need to treat them in this way or that way. And you know, my response to that is, I think we've tried pretty much everything with Russia. We've tried publicly being aggressive. We've tried privately being aggressive. We've tried publicly being diplomatic and privately being diplomatic, and nothing works. And I think that generally you could say that Western policy towards Russia and to China, which I know we will talk about shortly, has been flawed for decades. I think the assumption has been, in the case of Russia since the end of the Cold War, that engagement will lead to democracy, human rights, etc. And that's the same assumption we've made with China. It's called the strategy of engagement. And both of those policies have been incorrect. Now, it doesn't mean that the opposite would have worked better, that a containment policy or fully shunning both countries would have worked. But I think that there needs to be a far more nuanced approach to both countries because both countries are competitors, but they also should and could be partners as well. But you mentioned Navalny, and that's, I think, quite interesting because that leads us into understanding how modern conflict is being conducted because I don't actually see any appetite, much as they flex their muscles, for either China or Russia to engage directly with another state-on-state -state situation. So the idea of kinetic warfare perhaps is something that we obviously we need to prepare for, but we're more likely to see political competition, and Navalny is a great example of that. Being able to remove your domestic opposition, the Shrifle incident in Salisbury was another example of that as well, of absolutely wanting to break any local rules by forwarding or promoting an agenda, utilizing proxy forces to expand your own terrain of influence, economic inducement, old-fashioned military coercion, theft of IP, cyber attacks. I mean, Russia does this well, doesn't it? Yes, and it goes back to something you said earlier. I think that Putin is very nostalgic about the Russian Empire. He's super upset about the way that the empire collapsed, and he has vowed to treat those who accelerated the demise of the Soviet Union, including spies, as traitors. And so that's his justification for going after people like Skripal. Now, they assume in their own weird way, their own logic, that it's fine to do it in other countries because they're not trying to kill a Brit, they're killing a Russian. And of course, that breaks all sorts of not only practice, international law, etc., but it's also not the way that you know our countries operate. You know, he's done the same thing in the United States, going after Russians in Florida, etc., or former spies that were able to escape or were exfiltrated from the country by Western intelligence organizations. So, I do think there is a piece of he's trying to reassert that. Russian prominence. He wants Russia to be seen as a superpower. He's inserted himself in the Middle East conflict in such a way that it's 
almost impossible to talk about the Syrian peace process, if there ever is to be one, without having Russia involved. And he's done that in a number of other places. He's even trying to get involved in places like North Korea, where they haven't played a prominent role. And so he's certainly trying to keep Russia at the big table. But it's so hard to know what's going to happen post-COVID. I think in many ways, one could say that some of these populist leaders have demonstrated that they are incapable of providing the right type of leadership in this kind of crisis. They're more into bombast and they're less into details and details oriented people are what you need right now in charge. And so it is possible that, you know, he may survive till he dies. I think that's a good prediction, but it's so hard to predict what might happen in Russia between now and then. And it's, it'll be very interesting to see if what happens in the U.S. election. I mean, the world can go in two really different ways if Trump wins versus if Biden wins. And if Trump wins, you Putin has greater probability of staying in power and the world will become more fractured and nationalistic and xenophobic and all sorts of those negative terms. And that'll help authoritarian leaders like Putin. Just, just tell us from your experience and sort of Rusi's angle, because I know that you study this carefully. Mm-hmm. On the military, capability, they have rearmed. And we sort of dismiss them to say they're not a superpower, despite Putin wanting to get back there. But they are investing in submarines, aren't they? They are investing in their service fleet, in the fifth generation aircraft. They're buzzing British airspace. They're patrolling the the North Sea. Their drone capabilities, I think, are sniffing around our intercontinental communications cables. The Arctic Sea is, is melting, and therefore it's more of a transition area there. They're active, though, aren't they? We can't dismiss that. No, you're right. And, and they're also investing in hypersonic missiles, etc. So, uh, so lots of next-generation technology. Uh, I think, though, that they have been punching above their weight economically, and, and they're spread very, very thin. Now, they're able to do that because a lot of the tools they use are hybrid tools, Cyper and others, so that aren't that expensive. And so it enables you to interfere in many ways. But certainly, you're right. They are using traditional kinetic activity. I mean, it's very possible they could militarily make an advance on a country close to them. It's hard to imagine right now they will go into Belarus, but who knows? And if they do, it's not clear to me what kind of response they would get from the U.S., from Europe, from the U.K., So I wouldn't put it past them from using traditional means of aggression. So, you know, it's just hard to say right now what they will and won't do, but they can't afford to do all of this. Don't forget, oil prices, gas prices are down significantly. The COVID crisis is sending every country into an economic tailspin. And so it's hard to imagine that they can continue to afford to do this, especially because the country is basically a kleptocracy and so many individuals own a vast majority of the wealth, and they're not likely to give it back to feed the country. And so it's hard for me to imagine that that kind of expansion can continue. And you mentioned that there is a synergy, if you like, a bonding developing between Russia and uh, China. Let's turn to China now. Now, China is a country that probably most people didn't know a lot about or had a strong view about, let's say six months, a year ago. But the debate about 5G and Huawei, the perhaps focus of attention because of COVID-19 on them suppressing the news, has really exposed where the country is today, what a titan they are economically, militarily, and technologically. And they've not really matured into that international global citizen that perhaps 
10 years ago when David Cameron and George Osborne trotted across there hoping to welcome them with open arms into the democratic fraternity. Yeah, I mean, China, it's very interesting with the view in Europe that Europeans have been on an accelerated learning curve about China. I would say the rest of the world has been hypervigilant about China for much longer. Go to, you know, Korea, Japan, Taiwan. Obviously, they're, they've been exercised about China. And the U.S. has been for some time as well. It really started at the beginning of the Obama administration, if you recall, the so-called pivot to Asia that never really happened because Obama ended up getting distracted by so many things. But the Europeans haven't worried about China. They considered it in someone else's backyard, and they were much more worried about Russia, which I think in the last few years, the Europeans have been waking up to a lot of negative behavior by China, more in the investment side, industrial policy, you know, IP theft, all sorts of bad practices. And uh, going into countries like Germany and Austria and buying up these middle-sized family-run companies, buying up the technology, and then often using that technology against those very same German or Austrian companies elsewhere. And so I think the Europeans only in March 2019 declared China a competitor and started trying to figure out how to manage it. Now, China has been very smart because, of course, President Xi started this. It was the 16 plus one initiative. Now it's 17 plus one countries, but it's basically Eastern European and some Southern med countries, some in the EU and some not that they've been investing in. They've been trying to make friends with basically to provide a bit of a bulwark against a common EU stance. And by the way, it has worked on several occasions. Hungary, Greece, Portugal have have blocked EU policy against China on several occasions. So China has been buying friends in Europe and investing heavily. So their behavior is very different. They're very overt and public about their investments, whereas Russians are pretty much covert and deny most of what they're doing. And the Russians don't really invest that much. Obviously, they're trying to do gas pipelines and others. But but the Chinese have been expanding their Belt and Road project to Europe. It's really a global project. And here again, we don't know what will happen at the end of this COVID crisis because I, you know, China also will be suffering economically and they won't necessarily be able to invest at the levels that they have been going forward. And by the way, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You know, people always say, well, China doesn't have any preconditions on its aid. They have lots of preconditions on their aid, as we have been learning, you know, whether it's what you call Taiwan or, you know, if you're going to invite someone to speak like the Dalai Lama to a university, there's all sorts of pressures these countries get put under by China. Yeah, and I've read a speech by U.S. National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, Tom Cruise's Top Gun film, uh, the sequel to the Top Gun, and that in the post-production phase, China managed to have the Taiwanese and Japanese flags removed from Tom Cruise's flak jacket. Um, Oh yeah, they've been putting so much pressure on Hollywood, on NBA, I mean, all sorts of, you know, the U.S., so many people have caved in the private sector to Chinese demands, airlines, etc. So, it, yeah, they've been very aggressive under Xi. And we need to distinguish. I think it's always important when speaking of China. And there's a little bit of hysteria I see in some of the debates in the UK. We are talking about the regime. The yeah, the Communist Party, Party exactly. Not the country itself, which we actually absolutely want to have solid relations. And where this goes is quite interesting. Some argue that, and I think I sit there as well, that... Uh, we are actually sliding into a Cold War already, but we're in a bit of denial in that we haven't really appreciated that 
this isn't about a build-up of weapon systems either side of an iron curtain and uh, missiles and so on. It's a more subtle, direct approach, almost putting Clausewitz on its head. So rather than war being an extension of politics, it's political competition being an extension of politics, of interference in our way of life, disinformation, removing people, other countries' ability to criticize in the, our international institutions so you can get away with things. So there's an inertia, if you like, in, in holding whether it be Russia or China, to account. Would you agree? Uh, totally. And it's hard to say. We, we all have to guess, really, what China's ultimate strategy is for Europe, for the world. We can guess. We think maybe it's to do with protecting its investments, its way of life, carving out a space for it to play a leadership role. I mean, the Chinese have always pretended like they were not interested in being a superpower and asserting itself on the world stage. But obviously, under President Xi, that's changing. And he is getting a lot of opposition to it. And certainly, it's not clear. There's a lot of pressure on him from domestically. And of course, whether it's in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs or in Hong Kong or in Taiwan, there's lots of areas that he is very challenged right now. And so it's hard to say what's going to happen there. But I mean, I think you raised an interesting point about Russia and China. Now, we've been doing some work on Russia and China in Europe and what they've been up to in, in individual countries and really more to educate ourselves and the public about what they're doing so people can make more informed discussions, whether it's in the private sector or for government policy. But so far, we haven't seen that much evidence that they're working in tandem, but I think they're very aware of what each other is doing and they're certainly learning from each other. You know, I was in China last October for a meeting and I remember speaking to some Chinese think tankers, academics and others who were complaining about U.S. policy and how aggressive the U.S. was towards China. And they were saying to us, the way that the U.S. speaks about China and calling us a strategic competitor, because in their view, that means you might go to war, that kind of terminology, they were saying the way the U.S. is talking about us is driving us closer to Russia. And I thought that was quite interesting, too, that they, they mentioned that. But it, it will be an uneasy partnership. And I think the aggression that we now have towards both countries is driving them together, as that Chinese scholar said. Yeah. You know, don't forget, Russia is still a much poorer partner. It's worried about being seen as a poorer brother. It's hard for Russia to assert itself with China because China pretty much, you know, is, is so much more powerful in so many ways, obviously not fully militarily yet, but they are investing very heavily. And so I think Russia is worried about that. And so it's going to be wary and careful. But I went to this conference in China, and it was a bit of the axis of evil countries. I mean, it was this annual security conference that the Chinese government hosts. And, you know, the first speaker was the Russian chief of the defense staff, then there was a North Korean general, then there was a, a Serbian minister, and etc. And it was basically everyone chatting and screaming about the U.S., about the West, about Europe, et cetera. And it's very interesting to hear that because, you know, I usually stay in this little Western bubble where I don't hear the way that they view us. And I think we do need to pay more attention to their concerns, their anxieties. It doesn't mean we need to agree with them, but we need to be trying to get into their heads much more than yeah. perhaps we do. I go back to this the sense of denial from, from the West, which we can now perhaps uh, move across to. Their technological might, some of these companies that they've got, Alibaba, China Mobile, Huawei, we're familiar with in the UK, but you know, Alibaba is Amazon and eBay put together. They are just so huge with such significant influence, which make all these other companies that we're familiar with, Facebook, just pale into insignificance. Right, I know. And, and, and the fact that they are 
making an enormous effort to be the AI global leaders and big yeah. data and all sorts of concerns and cyber, et cetera, is really concerning. Yeah, they all use the same sort of credit cards so the government can follow them everywhere. Their cameras yeah. everywhere. Countries are actually almost having to choose sides. Do you pivot or stay with what you prefer to be the West? Or do you take advantage, particularly if you're a, a relatively small developing country, let's say in the middle of Africa, and then suddenly these characters turn up, offering you state-of-the-art 5G capability in new mobile infrastructure for next to nothing. Do you see this, this as, as a concern? Yeah, I mean, that, some people are concerned about that. The way they're being treated on Huawei may push China to try to develop full capability in telecom so that they will no longer be buying Western products to use with their technology. So you could end up with two completely different systems that are fully separate from each other. Mm. But at the moment, I don't think countries should be pushed to making a false choice. I think the U.S. is putting too much pressure on countries to say, you know, you're with us or against us. It's that George Bush Iraq war question again, or that proposal again. And obviously every country needs, you know, including the U.S., is deeply entangled with Chinese, with the Chinese economy, with Chinese companies, and they have been for years, just as much as they are with others. Now, I think one thing COVID has taught us is that we are overly dependent on China, especially with supply chains, etc. We need to increase our own capacity, our own resiliency. We need to build in redundancies so we're not overly reliant on one supplier, and that supplier is often China, especially for critical industries, or even for sometimes for agriculture and for other aspects of our survival. And so I do think that post-COVID, William Hague, our, our Lord Hague, our former chairman, mm. was using the term deglobalization. People often use that word decoupling. But I do think there will be an enormous effort. It may cost countries more, but it's at the end of the day, they may feel they need to build in such redundancies for their own survival and their own security. I just wanted to touch on the threats from China militarily because their navy is growing. They have the largest land army in the world. They're upgrading their air force too. They're now in the aircraft carrier market. And I think there's some concerns about space as well, the weaponization of space. Do you agree that we need to be really taking them seriously? As Absolutely. And hypersonic weapons as well and missiles are also investing in that area. And that's one area where other countries, Brazil and India, are also investing in. There are no international agreements or protocols regulating their use. If Trump wins again, you know, he'll pull out of all such arms control agreements. I think if Biden wins, uh, Vice President Biden, he will make an effort to try to figure out how to bring China into many of these negotiations. I know it's not simple and it's yeah. hard to do it with three countries, but I think it's absolutely necessary. And then to bring in other countries, such as India and Brazil or whatever countries may be developing these technologies. I'm sure you were at the Munich Security Conference last year. The theme was Westlessness, this idea that the West itself has lost its mojo, its purpose. What do we defend? What are our values and standards that we're willing to uphold? And that's almost given space. So much we've seen the rise of China and, and Russia. We've almost, as well, parallel. We've seen the demise, if you like, of that coordination of what we believe in, those things that united us after the Second World War. Would you agree that there is time to sort of uh, re-engage, to, to upgrade and to rebuild those institutions? but also recommit to actually standing up for what the West believes in. 100%. I mean, I think another lesson we have learned from COVID is that no country can manage this on their own. And they're all trying to manage it on their own because there's no real coordination going on globally. And there are very few challenges 
that I can think of globally, whether it's nuclear weapons or it's, it's global terrorism by organizations such as ISIL or catastrophes, health, public health catastrophes like this, where a country can resolve this on their own. China is another great example. I mean, the U.S. cannot manage China on its own, and he has tried in so many ways to do it, and he's tried to do it without the help of any other country, and it's just not possible because China is too clever and will uh, build up alliances with countries that they need to do that with. So partnerships and alliances matter now more than ever, and yet we are in the most atomized world we have been in some time. I think Trump has accelerated a lot of this, it, you know, this much of this was in motion, but Trump has certainly been an accelerant for this at the global level. On the other hand, I think the one thing that he has made very clear is that many of our institutions, whether it's NATO or the EU or the UN, are in desperate need for reform. And it just wasn't happening without a supercharged <laughs> negative force like Trump has been for these organizations. And I do hope if Biden wins that these organizations will think about reform in a very serious way. I think, you know, you work for one of these organizations, you're very aware that they need to be reformed, but it just hasn't been possible before. Now I think we're in a situation where our very survival could depend on organizations like the UN being reformed. And I certainly think Europeans should realize how important NATO is. And I hope the UK does post-Brexit, you know, post the official Brexit at the end of the year, how important NATO is for the security of this country. But if Trump wins, it's going to be an interesting transition. It doesn't mean that it's going to be doggy dog in Europe. I think the Europeans will come together and be much smarter about it. I think in a lot of ways, the muscle memory in so many parts of the world was just to wait for what the U.S. would do and then other countries would come together and work with the U.S. Yeah. I think with Trump, they realize they can't do that, but no other country or organization has stepped in the place to provide that leadership. And I imagine that if Trump wins again, that will be rectified, that a country or an organization or a grouping of countries and organizations, like-minded is one of the terms we often use, will come together to provide that leadership and the U.S. can join if it wants or not if it doesn't want. But certainly countries won't turn to the U.S. anymore if Trump wins again. And it's really going to be the beginning of the end of the U.S. superpower status, in my view. There's this been talk of the D10 grouping of nations. I mean, you mentioned India and Brazil two nations, democratic nations, that we'd want to ensure would be included. I read the Economist report on why the UN itself doesn't advance and upgrade because it no longer is, is, is arguably fit for purpose with you know, the way the National Security Council is structured and so forth. But the Five Eyes seems a solid group of nations that we could work with, expanding that out to perhaps create a new contract a new commitment as the basis to regenerate a sense of purpose for the West. There are lots of groupings of countries that can be expanded or built upon. I mean, the Five Eyes is mostly intelligence sharing. It doesn't include Germany or France. So I think that it could end up being that we get back to David Matrani's functionalism, where you come together for a specific purpose, and then you can come together in other ways for other purposes. So, you know, it could be something a little bit less organized and a little bit more organic like that. But, you know, I think organizations like NATO really do matter. And the UN could matter. The UN is on at the risk of being considered fully ir irrelevant. And it's proved to be so with this COVID crisis. Now, I think that if countries such as the UK and the United States put sincere effort into figuring out ways to really get the UN going, and it could be it needs to 
think about ways of bringing in non-state actors that are critically important. There are lots of ways you could think about reform in the UN. I don't think the Security Council is the main one right now. Uh, but but so there's lots of reform efforts that need to happen going forward. It's not clear to me how and when those will happen. Just one point on the India and Brazil. I mean, here are two other countries that have populist leaders right now. And so they will be reluctant to be playing a collaborative role right now. But India in particular is incredibly important. I mean, a fifth, what is it? A third of the world's population live in India and China. India is the world's largest democracy. And I think that you know, if you're not seized of India now, it may be a little bit like how we were not seized in Europe of China a few years ago. And we do need to be thinking more strategically about India. So all eyes on November. I mean, we're in a multipolar world. We're facing unprecedented challenges with the rise of China. We have an assertive Russia. We have still many issues like global terrorism. And then, of course, the U.S. has withdrawn from its traditional leadership role. And now you have a pandemic on top of all that. So it really, as you said at the very start, the disorder is unlike anything we've ever seen, basically. Well, Karen, thank you so much for your time. We've covered so much ground. It's been quite incredible. Many questions left hanging. There's so much to understand as to where things go. By the end of the year, we'll have a better picture as to what is the collective position of the West But for today, can I say thank you very much indeed for joining the series of CMEC podcasts. Please give our best wishes to David Livington, who I think has now taken over from William Hager. Again, another great friend of CMEC as well. Can I also thank you very much? Great conversation, great questions. And I hope uh, you will let me interview you in the very near future for a RUSI podcast. Not at all. We're really pleased to be able to do that. Thank you as well. For today, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Bye-bye.